As we get started, I'll be in 1 Peter. I will cover several different passages, but we'll start in 1 Peter. And uh, before we go there, though, my glasses that I wear that I take off a lot because I get hot up here, these are what's called transition lenses. When I went to the eye doctor last, she said, we need to get you some readers. Now, in everyday language, that means, Jamie, you're getting old. And so we call them transitions just to make them sound better than bifocals. And so they're, up top is distance, so I can usually see people at a distance. And then the middle transitions to up close. And so I, I share that with you today, not to regale you with information about my eyeglasses, but to tell you this is a final Sunday on a topic that I think for so long was off in the distance, and we're kind of transitioning to realize we need to deal with it. And I felt for some time that I needed to give a little more attention to this topic, preaching through Romans, as I said before, you hit every topic eventually. So two weeks ago, I shared with you what really was a quick, it was a brief survey of Scripture that related to homosexuality. I want to just hit the high points of that again and then give you some thoughts on how I hope we can respond to it. Uh, as a reminder, there's no place in Scripture where any form of homosexuality is affirmed. It is always considered and described as sin. There are uh, various references that make clear that God's judgment has come at times because of that sin. It is not unlike many other sins. Throughout Scripture, we'll see lists of sins. This sin will be listed with others. However, it is unique. And uh, I found a good description of that in a book written by Beckett Cook. He wrote a book that's entitled, A Change of Affection, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. Great book, recommend it without reservation. He said in his book, and I quote, I think homosexuality is one of the most difficult sins to untangle, process, and redeem. Homosexual orientation affects the whole person. The mind, will, emotion, and body. And the reason why I felt for some time the need to address this is because this particular sin is so prevalent and even promoted in our society today. We know attitudes are and have changed. This particular sin is presented as normative. We're told, accept it, bless it. And there are organizations and even churches that are changing their views on this particular sin. As individuals begin to identify as this sin. No longer is this just a sin. This is how I identify. And that presents a challenge for us. How do we respond? What do we say? What do we do? And now we're seeing how this sin is affecting our culture and in this country, it's working its way through society, through the court system, where even religious freedom is being challenged because of this particular sin. So how do we respond? I'm going to address this today, and then I'm going back to the book of Romans. I will not answer every question that there is. I will not satisfy all of your questions. But I would remind you as I began that you and I don't fix people. 
We bring them to Jesus who can fix everybody and everything. We don't seek to make them good but godly. We don't seek to bring them to a position where they're straight. We want them rather to be submitted. We're not even after them to be heterosexual but to be holy. Salvation is about much, much more than our sexuality. So I'll take you to 1 Peter chapter 1. And use this as a jumping off point today. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'd like for you to look with me at verse 13. There the Bible says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with 1 Peter I understand that. It is uh, perhaps neglected. It's towards the end of the Bible, and it's easy to skip over the little books sometimes. But Peter was the apostle to the Lord Jesus, and he wrote this letter to the churches that are in exile. They had been uprooted from, most scholars think, Rome, and they had been used to colonize various other areas. But he wrote the letter to these exiled Christians because they were feeling the pressure of culture. One scholar said that the letter addresses physical and psychological pressure, social ostracism and exclusion, a potential pull from the former pagan way of life, the surrounding non-Christian, seductive, non-Christian worldview, and spiritual doubts about the reliability of God's promises. Now, when you hear that, I don't know that any of that registered with you, but in the first century, the Christians were feeling physical and psychological pressure. They were feeling they were ostracized socially. They were feeling a pull from a former pagan way of life, and they were surrounded by a non-Christian worldview. Isn't it amazing how relevant that is for the church of the 21st century, just as it was for the 1st century? Because if you and I are really called out and seek to follow Jesus, you and I may face some of those same pressures. The USA Today newspaper this last week had an article. It was written by a florist whose name is Baronel Stutzman. Isn't that a great name? Baronel owns a florist um, called Arlene's Flowers in Richland, Washington. She wrote this article, and USA Today published it because her case is before the Supreme Court of our country for the second time. She had a customer for more than a decade who she knew was gay. He knew she was a Christian. They had a wonderful working relationship. But when he chose to marry his partner, she said, that's where I have to draw the line. And I cannot do the flowers for your wedding. And even after a decade of a good relationship, he sued her. And her case made it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court sent it back to the lower court that refused to act. It's back to the Supreme Court. And she said in her writing, quote, Life must be lived authentically, and Jesus is my authentic life. Well, I'll just remind you that as you and I seek to live authentic lives, we're going to face more and more pressure. 
So Peter reminds the church of some things that are very important. So the context of what we read from chapter 1 verse 13 is that Peter has commented on the fact that we have a salvation found in the Lord Jesus. And our salvation is secure. Uh, Our salvation is not affected by what culture does or what culture thinks. Because as a result of our salvation, Peter says we have an inheritance. And our inheritance is imperishable. That means it's free from death and decay. It's undefiled. That means it cannot be made unclean. And Peter says our inheritance will not fade. That means our inheritance, which comes as a result of our salvation, is imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade. And because of that, Peter told the church then, and I would share with the church today, we have a hope. And that was very significant in the first century because they all felt like outsiders. They were in a foreign land with foreign ideas, worshiping what many people that day thought was a foreign god. And therefore, they had foreign ideas. And you and I are becoming more and more foreign in our own culture. Bible-believing, God-fearing, Christ-honoring Christians are quickly becoming the minority. And we already are if we hold to what Scripture teaches about homosexuality. So Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds. In the King James Version, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we don't talk that way anymore. But that's written in a day when everybody wore robes. And when there was work to do, they had to tie the robes up. Thus the saying, gird up your loins. When I have real work to do at my house, I put on overalls. And Ashley begins to pray. (laughs) Wondering, oh Lord, what destruction will be wrought upon Pruitt Manor today. Back when my kids were home, I think they would text and say, Dad's got on overalls, lay low, don't answer his calls. But when people in my home see me with my overalls on, they know I'm about to be outside doing something. There's this communication that there's action that's about to take place. That is the word that Peter uses when he says, prepare your mind. So how do we prepare our minds for action? Well, we learn. And that's why I gave you scripture last week. Because for the church, we must always go to scripture. Friend, we cannot go to culture to tell us how we ought to act, how we ought to believe, what we ought to be about. We always go to Scripture. And so I took you to Scripture. That should be our guide. I have for you today, if you're interested, a list of books. If you want to read further on this topic, it's just a beginner's guide to books that are a Christian worldview towards human sexuality and especially homosexuality, some of them being personal testimonies with strong biblical positions. And if you want more, I've been talking to my professor of Christian ethics and theology at seminary. I can give you more books than you can read in half a lifetime. But preparing our minds means that you and I are going to have our minds shaped. But it ought not be shaped by culture It ought always to be shaped by Scripture. And we live in a day where many people choose not to engage their minds because it's just easier to go along so we can get along. 
or we'll meet someone who's struggling with this particular sin and we'll say, well, they're so nice, they're so friendly, they're so kind, they're such good citizens. How can this be wrong? What business is it of mine? And the challenge is that when Peter wrote his letter, chapter 1 is really calling the church to holiness. And holiness is not just a matter of the heart, which affects our affections. Holiness is not just a matter of the hands, which determines our activity. Holiness is also about our head, which determines our attitudes. And it is not okay for the church to just go along with the groupthink, with what culture says. We must be guided by Scripture. Therefore, Peter said, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So prepare your minds, he says, by being sober-minded. That word means you're in control of your thought process. That you determine what you believe. Why? He says so that we can set our hope fully on grace. Now grace, as you know, is the unmerited favor that is offered to us by God. And no one deserves God's grace. You and I do not deserve God's grace. You and I in our sin did not deserve God's grace. Yet in his love and mercy, he extends grace to us. And with God is my witness... I'm telling you, this is how we ought to approach every sin and every sinner, with grace. Because God has given grace to us. Now, we must call it for what it is. It is sin. It sounds nicer to say alternative lifestyle, my new identity. It is sin and it is sinful activity. But we set our hope on the grace that comes from Jesus Christ. Anytime we think about grace, run to the cross. Because his death on the cross was for you and for me. This is our hope. See, that's my hope. That God loves me. That God gives me grace and extends forgiveness and mercy and love to me. I didn't deserve it. Though that's never been my sin. That's never been my struggle. He still showed grace and love and mercy towards me who has other sins to deal with. So what must we do? Are y'all ready? That's my introduction. What must we do? Number one, we must determine the veracity and the value of our faith. Now veracity means accuracy. It means truthfulness. We must determine the truthfulness of our faith but not only that the value of our faith that is the worth that you and I assign to it so hear me closely it is not enough church for you to have a fondness of scripture it's not enough for you to be fond of Jesus it's not enough for you to like church and all that church is about we must have a faith built upon the Word of God and know what we believe So do you believe God's word is truth? Do you believe God's word is sufficient for you? Do you believe God's word speaks to this issue and every other issue under the sun? We need to know what we believe, but not only what we believe, but why we believe it. Because we move from believing it is sufficient to it is sufficient. And we choose to live our lives guided by his word. Determine that God's word is our guide in life. Are we willing to stake our life on this word? Because there may come a day, much to our surprise, that we would find ourselves like the florist in Washington who says, 
my authentic life is Jesus. And regardless of what it costs me, because as she explains in that article, she's facing financial ruin, but she's standing on her faith in the Word of God. Are we there? We better make sure that we have determined the veracity and the value of our faith. Secondly, we must have a faith that is visible. That means we must live out our faith. Beckett Cook, I mentioned his book, A Change of Affection, recounts the story of how his change began. It's a wonderful story. It's a fascinating tale. He and his friend had a typical Saturday where they slept late, got up, and drove to their favorite coffee shop in Southern California. And he said in that perfect mid-70s temperature, we scored a table on the patio. And I'm thinking, patio, sunshine, and coffee, hallelujah, glory to God. And in that book, he tells the story of the man that captured his attention. He noticed the man, but then he noticed what the man was carrying. It was a book that had written on it a commentary of Romans. And he was surprised to see someone carrying a book like that and even more surprised to see him join a table full of 20-somethings who all had Bibles, all had them open, something he had not seen in his 15 years of living in Southern California. And he was amazed that they would sit openly and have a Bible study. We must have a faith that is visible. As everyone sort of left the Bible study, one man remained, and he, finding strength he did not know he had, said he walked over and said, What are you, a Christian or something? To which the man replied, Yes. And that began a conversation. Friend, I want to tell you, God's Word has told us that we must have a faith that is visible. If you still have your Bible open, go to... 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. We were in chapter 1, just go to chapter 2. And there the Bible says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then Peter says to the church, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The Gentiles were the unbelievers. The Gentiles were the pagans. The Gentiles were the ones that didn't come to church on Sunday. The Gentiles are the people that populate Arab, who are not believers. The, the Gentiles for us today are those who look at us suspiciously. And so Peter says, you and I must keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, he didn't say if. Did y'all notice that? He said when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's a powerful word from Peter. But guess where Peter got that? He heard Jesus preach that message. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13, that's where Jesus told us, that we're the salt of the earth. And he tells us if it loses its saltiness, it's of no value except to be thrown out and trampled underground. But then when you get to verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, 
Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It was assumed by the Lord Jesus that those who followed him would have a faith that is visible, that you and I would live out what we believe, that we would be living in such a way and doing such good deeds that the lost, the pagans, the unchurched, those who are happy in their sin would look at us and say, wow, there's something different about them. So the question is, can the world... Really, the question is, can Arab... Can your co-workers and your family members and those who are in class with you, can they see Jesus in you? Because if not, if, if there's no difference, we must ask if our faith is genuine. If we've really been converted, can the world see Jesus? In, we must live the life in Christ that we claim to have. We've got to determine the veracity and the value of our faith. We must have a faith that is visible, but then we must be vocal with our faith. We have to be willing to tell our story. We have to be willing to tell people what Jesus has done for us. Now, you hear that, I hear that, and we think, well, I've got to be able to answer all of their questions. That's not true. I've got to be able to argue any point that they bring up. That's not true. The, the issue is, can you and I give testimony to the faith we have in Jesus and to the difference that he's made for us? What is the big deal? Beckett, in his book, says that after seeing those at the coffee shop out on the patio, Bible study, everybody left, he's approached the one, and he said, I begin to ask that man questions, and oftentimes they will. And he said in his book, I asked him, how can you be certain God exists? How can you believe the Bible is true? What about humans who suffer? What about people who have never heard? And then he got to the question that really meant something to him. What do you believe about homosexuality? To which the man replied, My church and I believe homosexuality to be a sin. And Cook describes that just before he could get that Resistance up, the man said, and I struggle with same-sex attraction. And then the man told him, and I quote, but following Jesus was worth denying that aspect of myself. See, that's somebody who gave a verbal report of what Jesus means to them. So my question is, can you verbalize your conversion story? Can you verbalize what Jesus has done for you? Can you verbalize that you believe Jesus can change anyone's life? We've got to have a faith with which we are vocal. So why does it matter? Well, you're still in 1 Peter. Go to 2 Peter. It comes after 1 Peter. I learned that in seminary, people. 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Y'all okay? I know it's cloudy today, and y'all struggle when it's cloudy. Y'all afraid you're going to get sprinkled or something. You all right? Second Peter chapter 1, lengthier passage, begin at verse 3 with me. Again, just the context. His divine power has granted to us all. This is Peter writing to the church in the first century. 
Speaking of God, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Did y'all see that, hear that? In this word, there is given to us everything we need for life and for godliness. Now church, I'm going to tell you, we're going to have to decide if we really do believe that or not. We, we need to quit going to culture. We need to quit going to politics. And as old-fashioned as it sounds, I'm telling you, we better go back to God's Word. Because everything we need for life and godliness is found here in Scripture. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His glory and excellence, by which, that's His power, by which He's granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? You and I are supposed to look more like the Lord today than we did yesterday. It's a process. Can I tell you what? I'm not there yet. <laughs> but can I tell you something else? You ain't either. <laughs> we are works in progress. Am I further along than some? Yes. Am I behind others? Good heavens, yes. But we work towards this. It is God working in us, shaping us and molding us so that we can become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Do you want to know why there is corruption in this world? Do you want to know why we get a lot of bad news from this world? It is because of sinful desires. When we hear all the horrible news in our very state this week, a child was killed, her body discovered in a dumpster. This unthinkable activity, it is because of sin. And we all have a sin problem. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, for what reason? All the corruption in the world. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Add to, anybody in here take vitamins and supplements? Anybody? Go ahead. Don't be shy. Jesus knows. Ashley's tried to get me to take them. Horse pills. I hate them. I can't tell a difference. Can y'all? <laughs> a supplement is something you add to. So add to. Supplement your faith. It's never enough just to believe and be saved. And here we are. Glory to God. We're supposed to add to our faith virtue. Virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And don't miss verse 7. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. You want to know how to respond to someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction or homosexuality? With love. It's the same way you deal with someone who's stuck in some other sin. Now, I'm going to tell you, sin frustrates me. Can I just tell you that? Because I see what it does to people's lives and people's marriages. And it's sin. There's no other way to describe it but sin. But we must love as we've been loved. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That's the problem with the church. 
We've been, we've been in the church so long we forgot we were sinners. We've been in the church so long we forgot we needed to be saved. And so should the Lord call you to a burden for someone struggling with this sin, here's my advice. Pray fervently. Listen carefully. Learn humbly. Speak gently. Walk faithfully with the Lord and extend grace as you have received and been shown grace. That's where my sermon ended. Until. I preached Wednesday night out of Galatians. I had a conversation on Thursday morning and it referenced Galatians. And the Lord reminded me that there's a fourth thing. We need to avoid vanity in our faith. Vanity is excessive pride. Now, you may not struggle with that, but there are times I'm pretty convinced that I do. I'll take you to Galatians chapter 5, and if you're not familiar with Galatians 5, it's Paul writing about the struggle that we have. He describes the work of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And he's describing to the church that you and I ought to seek to walk in the Spirit. We don't walk in the flesh. We don't walk in power. We don't walk in lust. We ought to walk in the Spirit. And so when you come to Galatians 5 verse 24, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That should be said of us. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That describes a Christian who's growing, who's maturing, who's, who's being sanctified. Are you all with me? But then he warns us, look at verse 26, let us not become conceited. How could that ever happen? Well, I've dealt with that sin. I've got victory over it. So now we think more of ourselves than we should. And the temptation is to look down on those who are still struggling. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And then you get to chapter 6, verse 1. He says, brothers, but the words for sisters too. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should stand back and condemn them. Is that what it says? We should spew hatred over social media, which is so easy to do today. God help us. I'm about convinced it's the work of Satan to give us social media. Almost convinced. It won't take much to push me over the edge. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Do you know what that means? <laughs> it means we're all subject to sin. Not me. Good night. Not to that. Lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You know how I interpret that? We're nothing. That's how I interpret that. I think I learned that in seminary too. So we must avoid spiritual pride. If we've gained victory in our spiritual life, it's not for bragging rights. It's for blessing the Lord, glorifying God, and helping others. We should seek to restore others, to watch ourselves, to bear others' burdens. We must come alongside those that are in sin, any sin, with the goal of helping them be rescued and redeemed. Beckett Cook, again in that book, tells the story of his sister-in-law, Kim, Kim was a believer, and when he came out, 
to his family, he noted that she did not condemn him. He said, she did something far more serious. She began to pray for me. And he said, for years she prayed for him. On the years when he chose to come home to Dallas for the holidays, she didn't condemn him. She kept praying for him. And he said they'd meet for hours at Starbucks. I think me and this guy are going to get along fine. Coffee threw out his redemption story. He said we'd sit at Starbucks for hours. Now get this. He said I would talk about guys. She would talk about God. And he said that created a safe place. A level of trust and confidence. And it became a place where truth could be spoken. We must stand on the truth of God's words. I hope you've heard me say that. We must stand on the truth of God's word. That is our standard. That is our guide. But we must extend grace to others. Peter said, set your hope fully on grace. Because the work that must be done in their life is not the work that we can do. Jackie Hill Perry was in homosexuality. And in her book, Gay Girl, Good God, she said, and I quote, I am what God's goodness will do to a soul once grace gets to it. The only constant in this world is God. Gayness, on the other hand, can be an immovable identity only when the heart is unwilling to bow. We must speak the truth in love, call them out of their sin, prayerfully, lovingly, gently, not condemningly. Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit's a lot better at His job than we are. And we must pray without ceasing. Would you join me now as we pray? Father, we bow before you and we express again our gratitude and wonder over your grace. And pray that you would give us a heart for others who are in sin like your heart for everyone that is in sin. We who have experienced your grace, we who have been forgiven, we who are being shaped into your image must love others. Help us to do that. Help us never to condemn as unreachable those for whom Jesus died. Help us to know what we believe and why. Help us to Determine the veracity and the value of our faith so that with our faith we can live out lives. That our faith would be visible, that we would be vocal with our faith. But Lord forbid it that we would ever become vain. Help us to remain as needy of your grace today as we were the day we trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. We love you, and we pray that you would help us and find us as those who preach the true gospel. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would